Okay, uh, welcome everybody. Uh, thank you very much for coming. Um, my name is Jeanette Okur and I coordinate the Turkish Studies program in the Department of Middle Eastern Studies. And it is my great pleasure to welcome um, a historian who's been active in the field of Ottoman studies and Turkish studies for a very long time, uh, both in the United States and internationally. Uh, before I introduce him, I also just wanted to tell you a little bit about this lecture series. It's a new series um, at UT, and it's interdisciplinary. We're going to have five lectures uh, this year. Two of them are related to history, um, but the, the upcoming lectures this semester are in different disciplines, and I just wanted to let you know about them beforehand. They're both in November. Uh, on Monday, November 4th at 3 p.m. in the Lone Star Room of the Texas Student Union, we'll be hosting a writer and journalist, Mustafa Akyol, um, who writes for mostly for two Turkish newspapers, the Hurriyet Daily News and Star, uh, but he's been featured in many other international um, papers. And his lecture will be based on his book, uh, Islam Without Extremes, A Muslim Case for Liberty, which was just published last year. That's also open to the public. And then uh, about a week and a half later, we will be hosting um, Dr. Nargis Ertürk of the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, she's a comparative literature and uh, she works on translation. Um, she's the author of Grammatology and Literary Mo Modernity in Turkey, um, which was also the, represent the recipient of the 2012 Modern Language Association Prize for a first book. So she's a young scholar. And uh, she's going to be presenting her latest research on the translation of communist thought uh, in comparative communist thought in Azerbaijan and Russia. And uh, she'll be presenting a paper on uh, a comparison of Lenin and an Azerbaijani contemporary poet and uh, playwright critic Hussein Javid. Um, yes, and uh, if you, any of you are interested in um, attending you know, a more intimate kind of uh, lunch or dinner with her, and you don't know me, feel free to send me an email and let me know that you're interested in meeting either of these peoples because we do have usually more in the schedule than just uh, the lectures. There's usually, they're usually here for a day or two and there's time to actually meet them and uh, talk, share your interest as well. Okay. Um, and then there will be two more lectures in the spring, hopefully. Um, okay, uh, today, I don't know how many of you have known Carter Friendly for many years anyway, and he needs no introduction. Some of you, do we have some history colleagues? Not so many. I think we have an interdisciplinary group here, which is good. Um, he is Humanities Distinguished Professor of the History Department at The Ohio uh, State University. And um, his lecture today will draw from um, two of his works. One is an earlier work, his, the first book that I read by him called The Turks in World History which came out in 2005, um, and also from um, a more recent work called Turkey, Islam, Nationalism, and Modernity, which came out in, in 2010, um, both of which won major prizes and have also been translated to Turkish. Um, let's see. He's also well-known for his contributions in the field of um, world history in general. He founded the World History Program at his own university and also founded, I recently learned, the Turkish language program or 
got it, got, got it running um, at his university. Uh, he likes to joke that he's not from Texas, but he's from Georgia, uh, and he hopes that his upbringing there, his uh, remaining Georgian accent will make you feel at home here. Um, let's see, what else is important? Uh, he uh, has written broadly about the history of uh, Islamic civilization and teaches courses in that with an emphasis on uh, the Ottoman Empire and the modern Middle East. And let's see, many other things, so many things. What else is important? He's won Distinguished Scholar Awards. He's been the president of the Turkish Studies Association. Um, important professional organization in the United States for uh, a number of years. And that's it. And we're very pleased to have him today and especially pleased to have him start off our series. Thank you very much. Ah, and if you have your cell phones on, could you please put them on silent? Thank you. I'd like to begin by thanking Jeanette and Brianna and Chris and everybody who... um, worked on inviting me here and uh, making this a uh, uh, smooth sailing and I hope uh, for you a sufficiently rewarding uh, experience. The uh, uh, understanding I got from Jeanette when we first started discussing this was that um, there would be sort of a mixed audience here today because uh, as far as Ottoman history goes, uh, Texas is in sort of an interim state right now. So uh, the idea would be, uh, and because of the nature of the subject itself also, there would be people here from, oh, for example, the Slavic and East European program as, as well as the Middle East program. So the idea was to do a sort of externally oriented, uh, extroverted kind of a talk that would put the subject on the map for uh, a, a general audience and, uh, and, and maybe help uh, in the process to uh, 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 generate momentum about uh, uh, seeing the uh, future of Turkish studies enter a new phase at the University of Texas. Um, maybe I'm elaborating a little bit on what she said, but anyway, I, that's what I understood my mission was. And uh, these, uh, uh, the, the relevance of these two books that she just mentioned, The Turks in World History, and my more recent one, Turkey, Islam, Nationalism, and Modernity, is that both of them, in their way, are that kind of a thing. Uh, Turks in World History was a book I looked for as a first-year graduate student and couldn't find. The library had a book called The Arabs in History, and then I thought, okay, I read that. Uh, now I'm going to look, go look for the Turks in history, and it wasn't there. So I thought, what does it take to write a book like that? Forty years later, I found out. Uh, also, another book that, uh, that was there for me to read at the time was Bernard Lewis's Emergence of Modern Turkey, which was a paradigm setter for its day. And in fact, it was the very first book about Turkey I ever read. And, uh, 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 and I asked myself, what does it take to write a book like that? but not too much like that, because already at the time I could perceive that Bernard was relying too much on his literary style and his uh, linguistic proficiency and not paying enough attention to tightening the uh, thematic and uh, conceptual integration of his work. I mean, as a 22-year-old, I saw that. So what does it take to write a book like that? Well, 50 years later, I found out. And I will try to distill all that into 48 minutes for you. (laughs) 
<laughs> this afternoon. Uh, I'm opening with you f f with a slide that I had the good fortune to make myself when I finally got to Central Asia and uh, uh, was taken to the, to the mountains of heaven. The, the, the Chinese call these the Tian Shan. But from that kind of setting, you do, do get an idea of, 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 of the steppe world, a place where people did picture sovereignty as something that was just there for whoever was strong enough to take it. There are lots of different ways of thinking about Turkish identity and uh, 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 a lot of senses in which it either is or is not a coherent subject. This is almost uh, true to an almost surprising degree. Uh, in trying to get some of these books off the map, I, I worked with some metaphors uh, as a way of creating a little sort of miniature model to speak about this problem. And one of, the, one of the questions I asked was whether Turkish identity was like a carpet where the, um, the vertical fibers, my textile terminology is not good enough for me to remember which is the warp and the weft. The vertical fibers are the continuities in time and the horizontal fibers are your cross-cultural continuities in space. And then the surface knotting is the motifs that uh, express Turkish identity as the Turks have made their way through time, as they have projected their identity through space and time. The carpet motifs, the experts think, actually are expressions of Turkish identity because it's believed that they started out as the uh, brands that the tribes used to identify their animals. And that's why a lot of them have a little more or less hexagonal shape. And that's why they're called gul in Turkish. Another metaphor that's very productive and, uh, and really does get close to this idea of the Turks as a people who both are and in some ways also are not a coherent category is to ask, are they like a caravan, or a modern image would be a bus, traveling across Europe? I'm sorry, across Eurasia. Here we have a, a photograph from this fabulous collection at the Library of Congress, a great free resource for all you people who like visuals, the Kudengorsky Collection, this mad Russian who toured the Russian Empire right before World War I making color photographs. As you will see later, this one is not, but, but uh, some of them are. Uh, and here we have some of these uh, 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 celebrated two-humped Bactrian camels with these immense loads they're able to bear. And uh, you can see what they think about uh, Samuel Huntington's idea of fault lines between civilizations from the look on their faces. They'll just uh, walk right over those uh, imaginary fault lines between civilizations. Is Turkish identity like a caravan making its way across Eurasia, steadily picking up and dropping off uh, uh, people and camels and bundles as it goes? And of course, those bundles, a lot of them have got uh, carpets or other textiles in them. That's a really productive metaphor because, uh, uh, in point of fact, a lot of these people never, never knew or never thought they were going all the way across Eurasia. In fact, most of them didn't. Uh, the Turks are great nomads, and some of them did make their way across Eurasia. Ultimately, a lot of them did. But this was a combined result of a lot of individual journeys that were much shorter and, and didn't all go in the same direction, even. So... Uh, Metaphorical images like that actually can help us to be sort of like little door openers to understand uh, 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 the internal dynamics of the subject we're talking about. 
when I started looking for a title to the lecture, I, uh, I thought up this phrase, tectonics of Turkish history. And uh, uh, it has alliteration, which is something that Turks have liked since the time of the Orhon inscriptions. And uh, also, uh, uh, it, 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 it expresses what I really wanted to do, which is to, to sort of try to identify large, large building blocks for an, for an understanding and a basic way of Turkish history. It occurred to me after I had got committed to this title that some people might expect this to be a sort of a Samuel Huntington type presentation about civilizations clashing and all that sort of thing. And, and if anybody came here with that expectation, all I can say is I will do my best to disappoint you. Uh, here is my outline for the afternoon. Uh, who are the Turks? It's a, 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 a tough, an interestingly tough question to answer. It's fun to deal with the complexities of it. Do the Turks, and it looks quite different depending what your, your starting point is. There are people in Turkey today who have views of who are the Turks quite different from the view you would get if you imaginatively put yourself back at where the Turkish people first appear in history and, the, and imagine their history coming forward from there. So depending which end you start at, which end in time you imagine and space you imagine that you're looking at this from, you come up with uh, actually incompatible answers. Uh, that's partly because of this, the interest of this other question. Do the Turks form a coherent category? Well, it depends on what axis of resemblance or variation you look at. Uh, and as we'll see, it, it varies totally depending on whether you're talking about language, culture, or, uh, or the sort of things that physical anthropologists get into, the, the physical characteristics that are associated with ideas like race. Okay, so we'll, we'll be looking then at, at uh, 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 what it takes to identify this category of people that we call Turks. And then uh, thinking about their history, uh, the best way to try to distill some important points in relatively brief time span, I think, is to ask the question of what are the most important legacies from the uh, uh, pre-modern past, and then what are the most important legacies from modern times. One of the things that uh, uh, holds their history together across time is that there are two especially large transitions in the history of the Turkic peoples. Between the 10th and the 14th centuries, most Turks converted to Islam. And this became their biggest and longest lasting uh, civilizational commitment. It starts in the 10th century when the Seljuks, who were the first ones who moved from, from uh, Central Asia into Iran and thus into the Middle East proper, they converted to Islam, moved over into Iran, and started to be players in the internal politics of the Islamic Middle East. And, uh, uh, and it also starts in Central Asia with the conversion of the Karakhanids, a dynasty that did not move into the Middle East but stayed in Central Asia. They convert to Islam, and in their case, this represents the uh, 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 part of the process of the expansion of the frontiers of Islam up into Central Asia. Central Asia 
uh, has been connected with Islamic history from very early on, but massive conversion up there is a rather late phenomenon in some places. And the Karakhanids are a Turkic uh, state that represents an early phase in this expansion of the frontier up into Central Asia. The other transition that has uh, most affected the Turks is they're becoming englobed in modernity. This is, of course, quite different. Uh, 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 adopting a religion as a matter of choice, being uh, absorbed into the modern world is something that comes whether you're ready or not. And, uh, and at first, this is perceived as a, the expansion of a European phenomenon. Today, of course, we realize it's global. Modernity also has two faces, one threatening and one enticing, and that fake fact makes a big difference in how, what the Turkish peoples do as they engage with it. Your illustrations here are two of the sites associated with this spread of Islam up into Central Asia. At the top, the tomb of the Karakhanid ruler who converted to Islam in, uh, I think it's 955, and below that, the tomb of Ahmad Yasevi, the Sufi sheikh, who's much revered in Kazakhstan for his role in translating the literature of Islam from Arabic and Persian into Turkish. So he was uh, uh, the poster guy for vernacularizing Islam in the Central Asian Turkic languages. People in Turkey think he had a role in the transmission of Islam to Turkey. All I can say is the people in Central Asia have never heard about that. That's, I think, a, a myth uh, or, or not a myth, but it was an early, it was a hypothesis that, didn't, that doesn't stand up. Who are the Turks then? As I mentioned, the answers to that question vary just wildly depend on the uh, vantage point that you assume. If you look at it from the vantage point of modern Turkey, from the modern Turkish Republic, you can come up with ideas like these. And here are the two intellectuals who are associated with two versions of them. First, we have a man named Yusuf Akchura. He actually came from Kazan up in the Russian Empire, but like a lot of people who, who could, he got out of there and moved to a place where people like him were in charge. In his analysis, the, the Turks have two roots, one going back to Central Asia and one going back to the origins of Islam. Boskurt Guvanch, slightly younger than he, and a uh, Georgia Tech alumnus, so he and I have, have shared this Atlanta thing. <laughs> he, uh, he, had, he also believes the Turks have two roots, but in his view, one is in Central Asia and one is in the Anatolian heritage before the arrival of the Turks. Okay, what's the difference? Each of them thinks they've got two roots, but they, they add up to three. And uh, it's, a, it's a, a question of your starting points. I think Yusuf Akhtar had the perspective of somebody who actually started out in Central Asia. Boskurt Guvanch has the vantage point of somebody who is a child of the modernization projects of the Turkish Republic. He also has pals who are archaeologists, like the distinguished Ekrem Akurgal, who worked on classical sites in Anatolia. And they, they are really into trying to establish some sense of connectedness between the Turks of today and, well, of course, the pre-Islamic Byzantine, classical, and further back, the Hittites, uh, and then back, and of course, Turkey also has prehistorical sites from which I show you some pictures, including this uh, ill-fated lady at the top who used to be a fertility goddess, but uh, 
uh, she got deconstructed and, ended, and, and bounced out into postmodernity with her uh, goddess uh, attributes uh, uh, divested from her. So she's not a fertility goddess anymore. I'm sorry to disappoint. The uh, roots of the Turk of the Turks look totally different if you, uh, if you turn around and try to start from their vantage, original vantage point in Central Asia and then you see something more, much more like what uh, Yusuf Akhtar was talking about. Um, here it appears that the name Türk with the umlaut so it has the same effect as an umlaut in German, Türk, which is the way the word is pronounced in Turkey. It appears that this went from being the name of a tribe to the name of a state to the name of an ethno-linguistic unity. And if you imagine that kind of projection, it helps you understand why the Turks as a category are hard to define because once you get a state created that's going to have probably a mixed population, then you're going to get people sort of absorbed under there who don't necessarily share quite all the characteristics of your original Turkic tribe, right? So you might get people who have like, I don't know, round faces and, and blonde hair and green eyes or something. Uh, and, and people like that are mentioned in early Chinese descriptions about the Turks. Uh, oh, we don't know when Turks actually first appeared in the world. Uh, the, the philologists have tried to reconstruct a, an imaginary proto-Turkic language by comparing, you know, the Turkic languages to see what must have been there at very early stages. And they hypothesized that there was some proto-Turkic language spoken prehistorically sometime between 3,000 and 500 before the Common Era. After that, the prehistory of the Turks gets caught up in that of other peoples, such as the, well, the, the, uh, in, in the classical historians like Herodotus, we read about the Scythians as empire builders on the steppes, uh, and those, they were speakers of Iranian languages. Then uh, later in the Chinese sources, we read about the Xiongnu, who, who appear to be the same as the Huns in the uh, uh, history of the barbarians who attacked the uh, uh, Roman Empire. And uh, it's, it seems quite probable that the, that the, that the proto-Turks were living among the Xiongnu. The Xiongnu are actually the people who invented the model of steppe empire formation and the uh, first Turk uh, empire takes it over from them. And then our actual first mention of Turks per se is in Chinese sources where the name gets presented in this form, Tu Jue. And, and those appear in the, the, the Chinese sources mention a, uh, a, a polity of the Tu Jue that emerged in 500s of the common era. And this became the first Turkish state, the Turk Empire, which uh, had two uh, uh, periods there with a short uh, period of being defeated and absorbed by China in between. They were centered in Mongolia. Mongolia was not Mongolia because the Mongol Mongols hadn't got there yet. Turkey was also not Turkey because the Turks had not got there yet. Uh, so you can see why there's a lot of, uh, of, of moving around uh, and instability in some of these categories uh, that we might like to think of as being uh, very firm. So the Turk Empire is our first one, and it produced the earliest known remains of, of, of a Turkic written language, these inscriptions on these pillars of which you see one. I think there's three of them. Uh, and, uh, um, and then there's a, next to that, the black and white thing is a rubbing that a Russian scholar made off one of the faces of the pillar. 
uh, so that's our earliest uh, Turkic written text from the 700s of the Common Era. After the fall of the Turk Empire, the Turks began to move westward. They more or less get out of Mongolia. The Uyghur Empire is the next one in what is now Xinjiang province of China. And of course, that's, where, that's the zone that we associate the Uyghur people with still right up to the present. So that's an example of how Turks move, but some of them don't move all that far, or they move to the next place over, and then they don't keep on moving after that. So this nomad thing, uh, we could overinflate it. Well, what unites the Turks? Uh, this opens up the question of unity and diversity among the Turkic peoples. And I'll try to give you some interesting examples of that with some interesting visuals as well. This gentleman here sort of looks like my idea of what a Central Asian Turk might have looked like historically, although somebody who kept a shop in, a, in Samarkand very likely thought he was Iranian. Uh, it's, you can't say just from looking. Unity and diversity among the Turks. Let's start with the unifiers. What holds them together and how, how unified does this make them? The people who truly perceive the Turks as a unified category are the language experts, the comparative linguists who study the different Turkic languages and point out to us that they resemble each other to a very high degree across space and time. They vary enough that they are not all mutually intelligible. I was in Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan, and I can tell you, you can just barely tell it's a Turkic language. Well, I mean, if I was a trained philologist, I, I guess just listening, I'd perceive more. That, but to me, I could just barely tell it was a Turkish language without really understanding anything. Uh, so, and uh, this, uh, this large family falls into subfamilies that have mutual intelligibility, like uh, uh, the Turkish of Turkey, Azeri, and Turkmen are mutually intelligible. And there's several other clusters like that. Across history, there have been 22 of these languages that have left literary remains, and of course some others that did not. And uh, somebody with the skills of a, of a trained linguist uh, is, is really quite impressed with the coherence and tightness and, and unity of this category. These linguists will sometimes say it's the only thing that unites the Turks. Uh, and if you compare it with other com language families, which is the sort of thing that the trained linguists are in a position to do, they will point out that the, Ro uh, the Indo-European languages, for example, are prodigal, profuse in their uh, difference in variegation compared to the Turkic languages. Compared to that, the, the, the Turkic languages are much more uh, tightly uh, tied together category. Okay, so very conspicuous uh, resemblances across space and time. If the linguists say that language is the only thing that unites them, what are we anthropologists and culture people and history people going to do? What does that leave with us? Can you have language uniting you and not have your language carrying any culture? I think that's, that's a I think you have to be a, a professional linguist to think that. Uh, and in point of fact, we do find cultural content that applies to, well, at least most of the Turks. When you look at these unifying characters uh, and you start going down the list, what you find is that, the, that the, 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 the degree of exceptions starts to increase as you move down the, the list of traits that you can identify. In the realm of culture, there are widely shared inheritances. Uh, 
and you know, maybe not everybody shares them, but at least they're widely shared. And I think there are two really big co uh, categories of these. One of them is things that reflect the commonalities of life on the steppes, which, and of course, that's a commonality that would go back to that era of proto-Turkic and prehistoric times. The decimal numbering system, the vocabulary of animal husbandry, the fact that they also knew about ironworking and bow making, which were very essential skills on the steppes. They, knew, they had certain skills in uh, horticulture and gardening or farming as well. It was not purely uh, a step type life. Uh, the concept of the, uh, of, the, of, the, of the tribal community as an ordo, a, a mobile armed force. It's both a migrating uh, camp and uh, a military force. All that goes back. Uh, those are, those, that's cultural content that, that pretty much, that, that's very widely distributed among the Turkic peoples. And then the fact that most of them joined the Islamic civilization between 500 and 1,000 years ago gives them another uh, huge amount of Islamic content. There was a time when no Turks were Muslims. There are Turks today who have never been Muslims. But, but starting in the year 1000 and, and over the next five centuries after that, most Turks became Muslims. So that's, that's the other second. After language, Islam is the second biggest uh, uh, identifier. Moving on down the list of traits that we might look at, you start to find things that have more exceptions. And, and maybe the exceptions begin to overwhelm the resemblances. Uh, and other cultural traits, one of the paradoxes that really challenges anybody who wants to write a book about the Turks in world history is the fact that these people are supposed to be famous for building empires, right? Turks and Mongols, who are, and of course the Turks' history is, they're not, uh, their languages are not related, but their histories are intertwined. They're cultural cousins, the Turks and the Mongols, who built the great empires. Of, the, of, of Eurasia, it was these nomads from the steppes, right? They built the empires. Ask any anthropologist, however, how nomads like to be ruled by states. Any anthropologist will tell you nomads don't like states. Nomads fight all they can to, to avoid being controlled by states. How can you have a case where people who don't like states build the greatest empires in world history? Okay, how are you going to explain that? Well, uh, that taxed my mind for a while, I have to say. Uh, and, and again, uh, back to conversion to Islam. That's another one of these things that, that unites a lot of them, but not all of them. When you get uh, down to the, to the uh, realm of traits that the physical anthropologists uh, might look at, uh, uh, you find that the Turks... You know, they, look, they, their, their languages are a coherent category. They moved across Eurasia without losing their identity. But they do not have a determinate physical type or racial identity at all. And it's not only that a place like Istanbul today is a melting pot. The bridge across the Bosphorus is this famous image of, of why you know, if you stand there, you see all the people of the world go by, it will seem like. That's not just something that the Ottoman Empire created. The earliest remains from Central Asia, the skeletal remains found in the prehistoric burials in uh, 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 Xinjiang, for example, the, and the so-called Tarim mummies, they have people with uh, 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 skeletons and these uh, desiccated corpses with European-style features as well as people with Mongol-style features. And so the, uh, the uh, genetic stock 
of the Turkic peoples has been mixed. It isn't just mixed today. It has been mixed from the beginning. A lot of people are not prepared for that. A lot of Turkish nationalists are going to be real unhappy about that. But one of the leading experts on the Tarim uh, mummies is an Uyghur Turk named Dolkun Kamberi. And if you saw him walking down the street and tried to guess where he was from, you might suppose someplace like Finland or Estonia or Latvia. But you would never guess that he was a Turk from Xinjiang province and he was carrying uh, probably a Chinese passport in his pocket. Just you'd never guess from his appearance. Okay, now let's look into our legacies of the past. We've got to do something about this thing about the nomads who, who don't like states but create empires. Here's a scene for you. Um, there's definitely unity and diversity in this Central Asian thing. It's supposed to be an arid steppe environment, right? But look how this melon seller is doing in, uh, in Samarkand already before World War I. I have a colleague who's just back from Samarkand, and he said luckily he was there for melon season this year, and it was absolutely fantastic. He said there are 70 different varieties of melons grown in the Ferghana Valley. So there are uh, agricultural zones, and there's plenty of agriculture, even if uh, animal herding is uh, um, uh, uh, highly characteristic of the region overall. Uh, those melons look pretty blasted good. And that's not bad color photography for before World War I. Okay, past legacies. This business about defying states and yet building empires. How are we going to deal with that? I was completely stumped on this for a long time until uh, something I read in a, a book about Mexico, of all places, made me realize that um, uh, the issues that a so that a, the, the, uh, the, the decision-making issues that you deal with in different levels or different scales of social organization, let's say, maybe have more in common than the uh, seemingly vast gap between the nomad, nomadic migrating community and a large empire would suggest. One of those is the kind of people that anthropology studies, okay? That's, that's I mean, like folklore or something over there. And the empire, that's the kind of thing that political science studies, right? Those are completely different disciplines. Well, in pre-modern kinship-based societies where the, the, this empire is going to be a dynastic empire, Maybe the issues actually aren't that different. What is the different is the scale on which the issues have to be dealt with. The migrating tribal community, if it wants to be completely stateless, it will just get the old men together and they'll make an agreement among themselves about who pastures their sheep over here and who pastures their sheep over there, who gets access to the water at what time of the day. Uh, if there's uh, some uh, controversy within the group about who's going to marry who or how somebody's estate is going to be divided, they will make a decision about that. They resolve problems within the group. They also deal with defense or, you know, conflicts with other social groups. That's politics. That, that isn't just anthropology. That's politics at the level of a self-governing kinship community. If you take that kinship community and sort of jack them up into the ruling dynasty of a nomadic empire, you find them dealing with essentially the same issues on a vastly enlarged scale.
So the solution to my problem about the nomads who, who don't like states but found empires is that this is not the difference between subject matter for anthropology and subject matter for political science. This is the difference between two ends of the same scale. It's the difference between macropolity and micropolity. And once I had that thought, then I had a, a sort of a door opener to, to, to get this book together about the Turks in world history. And the uh, people in the field who helped me with this the most this is real bad PowerPoint, uh, practically putting bibliography and footnotes up there on the screen as if you can really get that. Um, if you want that, we'll find some other way to get it to you, like just make the thing available and you can print it off. But uh, this is an example of how not to do it, okay? Uh, but uh, uh, just to uh, 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 get out there, uh, Nicola Di Cosmo who is a great expert on the relationship between ancient China and the steppe peoples, wrote a, a very enlightening article, which you see cited there, in the Journal of World History in 1999, in which he uh, analyzed how uh, empires form on the steppes. He was dealing with this history of empire steppe formation. And he has both a stage model of how you do this where he pictures this as the outcome of a crisis in the steppe society that leads to militarization, the emergence of the charismatic ruler, and, and this sort of sacral investiture, the idea that he has the mandate to rule, and then the, the empire gets created. And he also has a, 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 a diachronic or periodization model where he looks at the evolution in the forms of this over about 2,000 years, because there is actually a learning curve in this empire building process. The, the earliest step empires are quite primitive in their institutional structures and their political and administrative capacities compared to those of, uh, of several millennia later. And that's what this periodization here from the tribute empires up through the direct taxation empires, that, that's the point of that. That's what's inside that box. Now, the other person who you really need to go to uh, uh, for your, uh, um, to really get into the, the, uh, 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 the history of the uh, Turkic peoples of the steppes is Peter Golden, who's uh, uh, got a lot of publications, but the, the one to start with is his introduction to the history of the Turkic peoples. And you notice he emphasizes ethnogenesis and state formation. So the emergence of the population groups and the state formation, he's already picturing those as the two variables there. He doesn't quite say they're the two ends of the same spectrum, but those are already there as two, bi I'm sorry, two big issues in his book. Okay. What are the most important legacies to emerge out of the past of the Turkic peoples? If you ask me that, uh, of course, other people might have different answers, but if you ask me that, I think one of them is this sacralization of state of, uh, uh, authority. It's, um, uh, and that's why I began with that picture of those mountains out there. That kind of environment, the steps with these, these incredible mountains off in the, different, in the distance, is an a empty space waiting for something to happen. And obviously, if you can create an empire out there, you must be doing something right. And the sky god, who is the most important god, this is Tangri. And the, the same concept is, is over in Chinese as, as 
the, the name of the ten on men square, the square of heavenly peace. It's, the ten is linguistically related to this Turkic term, Tangri, who is the sky god. So if, you're doing, if, you, if you can create an empire out there, you, you are doing something right. The sky god obviously likes you. So you have the mandate of heaven. This idea of a mandate of heaven, something like that, appears in all the major cultures of Eurasia. And in the case of the Chinese-Turkish thing, the actual terms are related. When you get over to Iran, the heritage of uh, empire going back to the Sasanians and the Achaemenians before them, you get a different term, far, which is, appears as a loan word in Turkish as fair, uh, but in Persian it really means a sort of uh, a charismatic authority to rule. Uh, the ancient Shahs of Iran claimed this. So the idea that if you are a successful ruler, you obviously have heaven's favor. Uh, and this has led to a sort of sacralization of the state, an I, a, a desire to invest a tremendous amount of power and authority. And it's, it's a, a sacral, it, isn't, it, just, it isn't just power. It has a sort of sacral aura to it and a sacred force. Um, I think somehow it's associated with the, with the conditions of life on the steppes because in, in that kind of environment, territorial boundaries don't exist. Your, your social composition, you, you could absorb, you know, defeat other people and absorb them into your own kinship group. So who the people are, where the territory is, that's indefinite. But the idea of state authority is sort of like a pure abstraction. You know, it's the kind of thing that, that floats above the mountains. Uh, and uh, this is going to be the most persistent golden thread or leaden thread, depending on how you feel about it, the most persistent identifier in, in Turkic uh, political culture from the earliest beginnings right up until the Gezi Park demonstrations. And it didn't stop then. Another sign of this is the idealized pasts that uh, different Muslim peoples look back, back to. In the Arab world, the idealized past is always the golden age of Islam, meaning specifically the period of the prophet and his immediate successors. Among the Turks, the idealized past, well, maybe, maybe some of the most pious Turks will say the same thing. In fact, I know ones who do. But among most Turks, the golden ages that they look back to are the golden ages of empire. And in Central Asia, this would be the, uh, the golden lineage of Chinggis Khan. And in the Ottoman Empire, it's the age of Suleiman the Magnificent, the uh, Ottoman Sultan, who is regarded as, well, as the, is certainly the high point of the Ottomans' material power in relation to the outside world, and also a cultural and economic high point as well. And you see a miniature over here of, uh, of him at the Battle of Mohach when his forces destroyed the medieval kingdom of Hungary in 1526. It's actually a double-page miniature, and I, I, if I had more space, I would have shown you also the Hungarian knights getting defeated. There is a learning curve that goes on in this history of the political culture, and we have a lot of cases where we can see that the, that the lessons from it either were not or in other cases were successfully learned. When I visited Central Asia a couple of years ago, somebody there asked me what was the biggest difference, a Turkish gentleman asked me what was the biggest difference I could see between Central Asia and Turkey. And this is the kind of stumper question that people love to ask you. And of course, if you're a foreign scholar, it's also a test of what kind of person you are. And um, uh, 
I, uh, one of the sort of occupational hazards of, <laughs> of living the life I've led is being asked questions like that. And uh, if I hadn't just published this book, it would have stumped me. But because of the work I did on it, I realized right away the biggest difference is the Turks of Central Asia lost control of their political destiny and the Turks of the Ottoman Empire didn't. And the way they lost it in Central Asia is because of this idea that came from the uh, Mongol Empire that uh, any member of the golden lineage, as they call Altan Uruk, what they call the lineage of Chinggis Khan, any lineal male descendant of Chinggis Khan was entitled to sovereignty. The idea that sovereignty is, is, it resides in the entire dynasty and not just one ruler is a characteristic part of this Turkic political culture. The Ottoman dynasty also believed that. The question is, can you do something to keep this from frittering sovereignty out to the point it reached in Central Asia where you have so many claimants that you, you've got political disintegration instead of empire? That's what happened in Central Asia, and it created a situation where they could, uh, where, whereby uh, from the 1680s on, Russia and China start partitioning Eurasia between themselves, and the peoples there lose control of their political future, and their culture gets invaded by you know, Russian loan words, and, and, and they end up in the situation they're in today of, of being able to express themselves in Russian better than in their own language, a lot of them. Wait a second. Well, I really through that. Over on the Ottoman side, however, we, we see that uh, there is quite a learning curve. This is the place where this evolution of this, what was originally the step model of empire, where it goes on the farthest. And oftentimes these, these, these changes and adaptations are anonymous. We can't put our finger on the moment when they occurred, but they found all kinds of mechanisms to, cut, to keep from having multiple claimants to rulership, uh, including killing the princes, I mean, sometimes they're rough but effective methods, but you can see what's at stake in the, po the political game. Uh, and so they're just, here are just a few examples. There were a lot of things they did to improve on the model of statecraft they inherited, and they certainly would never allow their territories to be divided in the way that uh, uh, the nomadic heritage uh, assumed that they would be. So they learned from the mistakes of the past. And that became, that's what enabled them to be the last one standing and also the most uh, longest lasting Islamic state in history. What are our most important lessons from modern times? By the 19th century, the Ottoman Empire had gotten into this strange situation of being a state that was uh, 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 imperial in a dual sense. On one hand, it was confronted with um, uh, uh, European imperialism, which was starting to take over territories, first of all, uh, beginning with the French occupation of Algeria in 1830. And at the same time, it was a multinational empire uh, faced with the problem of holding on to or trying to retain its sovereignty over uh, non-Turkish peoples who, uh, uh, starting in the Balkans, with Serbia and Greece, wanted to become independent. So it was a double-headed eagle, all right, and both eagles were threatened with having their necks broken. Uh, 
uh, very uh, 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 critical situation. It created a tremendous sense of urgency about modernizing reforms. Uh, first of all, with a, the defensive uh, motivations of you know improving their ability to defend themselves in the military sense, but also uh, ultimately also taking advantage of those attractive aspects of modernity, training people who had modern medical skills, for example, creating a you know using steamships to create a ferry system at Istanbul in place of the old rowboats they had used in the past. All of, all, of that kind of, all of that kind of thing. So this defensive modernization effort starts this uh, a process of modernization that has uh, uh, led up to the emergence of modern Turkey. In the upshot, the, uh, the biggest difference in the fate of the Turkic peoples in the 20th century is going to be the point at which they uh, uh, gain accession to sovereignty in the form of a modern state. And uh, uh, the Ottoman Empire fell, but the Turkish Republic arose in 1923. In Central Asia, where they had lost their sovereignty centuries before, they didn't regain it until 1991. Does this mean that there is a sort of Turkish exceptionalism for the Ottoman Empire and, and Turkish Republic? analogous to the sort of American exceptionalism that, <laughs> that a lot of Americans like to think about? Well, I don't know if there is. Um, uh, it, of course, is what they did grows out of what everybody else did, too. Uh, early on, at the time when I was first entering this field, the hegemonic uh, uh, line of interpretation, which you find in the work of Bernard Lewis and Niazi Berkes and their contemporaries, was a sort of linear trajectory from uh, Islam and empire uh, in decline, of course, uh, up to uh, 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 the secular national republic that replaced it and was adapting successfully to the modern world. And uh, that line of interpretation seemed convincing in terms of where things were in the 1960s the fit of the Turkish case to the modernization theory of the 60s was strong enough to impress the heck out of me already in that period. And it turns out now that it was uh, uh, that, that these two fit together for a peculiar reason. It was a, a linear interpretation arrived at by circular reasoning because modernization theory was largely generalized from the one and from the single case of Turkey and we know this because of the role of some uh, very prominent, uh, at least, well, one or more very prominent Turkish scholars, scholars of Turkey, like Dankwart Rusto in working with the Council on Foreign Relations in New York to sort of propound sort of the foundational work on modernization theory. So the theory, which seemed to be so well exemplified in the case, well, it was made up because, I mean, that's where the content of the theory came, came from. And uh, it's a case of being too impressed with something and using what are, in fact, bad uh, social science methods. It didn't take long. Certainly by the 70s, you could see that this linear interpretation was not holding very well uh, uh, and that there was more at stake in, uh, uh, in understanding Turkish history than just this linear trajectory towards uh, Republican secularism. Uh, and, but it took a very long time to work out an interpretation of of, of what to put in place of it. 
And uh, this was when, when I set out to write my book on uh, uh, modern Turkey, this, like the, the micropolity, macropolity problem in the other book, this was my biggest uh, challenge. How can I come up with a, uh, 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 I wanted to write a panoramic history of the last two centuries, but I didn't want it just to be a digest of what everybody else had written. How can I, what's the largest pattern of meaning you can find in this? What's the original idea that emerges out of all of this evidence? It's obviously not just a linear trajectory from Islam and empire to secularism and republic. We don't believe that anymore. That doesn't work. Uh, so if it isn't a, you know, just a single line, maybe you've got like more than one line and they're sort of like competing somehow. And uh, so what I arrived at was this idea of a dialectical interaction between two currents of change that form very slowly and interact across time dialectical fashion. It doesn't have anything to do with Hegel or Marx. It's just because I needed two things interacting across time. And uh, uh, one of these is a, 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 a radical approach to engaging with modernity. And of course, in the 19th century, modernity was Europeanization to the Ottomans. They didn't debate about what, whether modernity and westernization and Europeanization meant the same thing. They equated, they themselves equated the two. It looked the same to them. And some people were all for that, just gung-ho for that and, you know, damn the torpedoes, you know, let the mosque burn down or whatever. Uh, just, uh, if we, this just go head whole hog for this. And then there were other people who took a more cautious approach. And they said, well, okay, look, you know, there, there are things about the West that are good, but if we just, if we just buy all of that, uh, then we'll lose our own identity. And they took a more cautious approach, and they wanted to have to hold on to something from their own tradition. And this tends to get equated with that matter-spirit dichotomy that, that is so prevalent in, in thought really all across uh, Asia in this period. And uh, so you had a conservative approach to modernity that also formed in the same period. And what, what is, these, these are usually, in Turkey, these, these, these are the two warring camps to this day, Islam and secularism. Although, in point of fact, all the conservatives are not good Muslims. Some of them are sort of like Ottomanists, or, or they're, they're secular conservatives, too. But anyway, it's, it's vernacularly pictured as the conflict between Islam and secularism. These two, are, these are like two big socio-cultural formations, two approaches to engaging with modernity that form very gradually in the 19th century. For a long time, most people... Don't, don't think they're choosing. They don't think they have to choose. They can just have all of this. But at moments of crisis, like the collapse of the empire, all of a sudden, there are forks in the road. And you have to decide, oh, my God, you know, if this man on horseback, this Mustafa Kemal guy, if he can defeat, you know, uh, uh, the, the Russians, for example, then maybe I better follow him. And so you become ready to situationally, you will follow something that might maybe not be your long-term desire. So the, the interaction between these occurrences of change is, is dynamic. They form very gradually because most people don't think they have to choose. They think they can be modern and, and Islamic at the same time and Ottoman and, you know, whatever, Ottoman and Turkish at the same time. They don't think they have to choose. When the crises start to occur, there are forks in the road, forced choices. People go this way or people go that way. 
in the long run, these, the, the, and gradually these two get in, differentiated, these two currents of change get differentiated in the way we're familiar with it in Republican times. If they had never done anything but clash, there probably would not have been a Turkish state come out of the uh, Ottoman collapse in 1918. But in point of fact, they converged every now and then. You get moments of synthesis. So the sort of Hegelian idea of dialectic does become relevant. They don't only clash. They, they, they alternately clash and converge. And there are moments when a sort of new plateau is formed and people move on. Uh, and there are lots and lots of examples I can, I can give of that. But I've run on too long already. So I think I'd better not write now. Maybe in, when there are questions. Okay, so that, this, the idea of two currents of change forming and interacting dialectically from the late 18th century up until the present became this sort of new idea to solve the problem of getting together these different approaches to modernity in my uh, most recent book. Okay, what is uh, most enduring about all this? Well, here's some images that uh, uh, relate to that. This sacralization of state power, boy howdy, is that ever still there? Uh, it's uh, something that uh, Mustafa Kemal Pasha uh, believed in in his secular way. The, the sacred part of it has gotten rewritten over into the, you know, into the realm of nationalist identity rather than religious consciousness. Uh, and it has certain pathologies about it. It creates a situation where executive power is always abused. It's what it's there for. It stands above the law and uses the law to control other people. The word for executive power is iktidar. It's an Arabic loan word. It means both executive power and sexual potency. And it's probably not a casual thing that those two are highly associated. As a person of the male persuasion myself, I can't complain too much about that kind of thing, except unless somebody else tries to subject me to some of its consequences. In politics, those can include situations where you never have more than one effective party at a time. This has been an Achilles heel of the Turkish Republic uh, from the beginning. It, it's had situations of multiple parties, but you've never had more than one effective one at a time. That's, that's, they, they keep coming back to that. It also creates a situation where there always seems to be some kind of deep state around, some sort of non-elected power center. And every time you try to get rid of it, a lot of people think that, that curbing the power of the Turkish military is going to get rid of the deep state. But the deep state is an ever metastasizing thing. There's, there's, it will take some kind of deeper change in Turkish political culture to get rid of these non-elected power centers because basically a lot of people want them. The idea of state power is, is such that there are going to be power centers and elites and vested interests that have their own uh, recruitment uh, uh, systems and their own... Uh, um. In fact, the Turkish military is not the only one that ever existed. The, the uh, secret organization of the Committee of Union and Progress in the, in the Young Turk period is already one of these. And, and since it was not exclusively military, it's, 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 it's my other case that proves it isn't only the Turkish military that do this. Okay, what are the chances that this, this, this dialectic between the two approaches to modernity that has, we can, we can argue that that has shaped the Turkish engagement with modernity over the last two centuries, what is the chance that that will break up or change and what is the chance that that might produce some kind of democratization in Turkey? Greater degree of democracy. 
this is a very interesting question nowadays. Let's start with, with looking at changing what identity politics has mean across the 20th century, not just in Turkey, but uh, around most of the world, uh, around the world. In the early 20th century, in a lot of places, it was characteristic of the times, prevalent thinking about identity politics wanted to create a national identity without difference. The manifestations of this, the, 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 the extremes to which it could go, varied. In the USA, we were tolerant of certain kinds of difference, but we didn't think black people should vote, for example, or have uh, uh, civil rights. In Germany, it got a whole lot worse than that where people like the Jews were concerned. Turkey, the Turkish Republic was a place, was certainly benign compared to a lot of places in Europe, but the idea of Turkish identity was a unity without difference. Unity without difference. Most nationalist movements, particularly in environments where you have to struggle to, 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 to maintain or regain independence, it means you've got to have complete unity of all the people. So you don't have time for, for differences among them. That idea prevailed up to the 1960s. The 1960s, with the demographic uh, uh, surge of that period, which of course was much greater in the third world than in the highly developed societies, became the time when that was no longer sustainable. And the sort of culture, counterculture, establishment, anti-establishment confrontation that uh, we lived through in the USA played out in Turkey with a bilateral polarization between forces of left and right. And ironically, both of them still presented in predominantly secular terms. The left was, had just discovered Marxism belatedly in bad Turkish translations. And the right was uh, uh, having an equally uh, uh, concocted version of, of, of Turkish ultranationalism. Anyway, and, and the Islamists were late getting off the mark in the 1970s. So you had this sort of sense of bilateral confrontation, uh, left and right extremes really endangering the future of democracy in Turkey. After 1980, you start to get a proliferation of all the axes of difference. This is something going on all over the world by then. It's my work in world history that enables me to valorize this. All of a sudden, all the axes of difference become salient. There's some, some you know, the timing of all this, and, and, and they're, they're not always simultaneities about it in different countries, but eventually all of them. Religion, ethnicity, class, gender, and the issues of personal preference or disadvantage, such as uh, physical handicaps or sexual preference. Eventually, all of that gets out into the open in Turkey. Okay, can this more complex identity politics over uh, rechange, can it change the tectonics of Turkish history? If, if in the last two centuries we've had this dialectic of two completing currents of change, can the proliferation of different identity politics, can that create a new tectonics, a, a, a more pluralistic environment that might yield greater democracy? Uh, it's, I think, the great question that, that people in Turkey today uh, ask, and uh, 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 it really emerges from the subject itself. Uh, we've, we have, uh, in the past 10 years or so, we have a, a, a very effective government in Turkey. The, the economy of the country has been doing much better, but we are back to this situation of only one effective party at the time. 
and to having a, uh, a prime minister who is going through this uh, hyper-masculinized, over-the-top uh, 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 expression of his personal iktidar uh, by trying to do everything, you know, whether or not anybody in the country wants it or not. And uh, this has boiled over finally in the uh, Gezi Park uh, demonstrations in, uh, 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 in Istanbul last May. I think well, one of the questions that emerges out of this, uh, this occurred to me in a dinner conversation with some Turkish friends last June, was uh, what would it take out of that to create something like a citizens' rights party? You know, that, that, that sort of would uh, uh, ca capture the demands of all these identity politics groups. If, if you could sort of, as, a, as an alternative to this currently hegemonic polity, Party. What would it take to create a, an, an effective second party that was trying to uh, respond to all these different identity interests? Well, uh, the makings of it are not out in the uh, not obvious. Now, it would take better leadership, or well, at least a more obvious. It would take an obvious leader candidate and organization and all that sort of thing. But that's the sort of thing that I think might potentially rewrite the tectonics of, of Turkish history in the contemporary Turkish Republic and produce a more democratic uh, political culture if it could just happen. That's my best guess for the moment. So I'd like to, uh, I've gone on much too long, I do apologize for that, but it, there was a lot to cover. And I'd like to conclude with two festive images. Uh, it's always possible to have fun in the Turkic world and here are and the musical culture is always uh, vibrant and, and dynamic. And here's two, to me, interesting recent examples of it. Okay, thank you very much. <laughs>